Welcome back, our courageous listeners, to the Walk Fearlessly podcast. This is a podcast where we hope to empower you to become the hero of your own story. This summer, we had the opportunity to present at the 2022 Sunstone Symposium. And the theme for Sunstone this year was many mansions. This was using Christ's words in the New Testament about there being many mansions in his father's kingdom. There were so many different ideas that we threw out for our presentation. And then we really honed in on the fact that what we teach and when we teach that clarity and fearlessness is really about living life in the middle. So for our presentation, we settled on talking about the mansion in the middle, which is about choosing the love that leads to heaven. We have decided to post the audio from our presentation here as a podcast. We hope that you enjoy it. And so for your listening pleasure, the mansion in the middle, choosing the love that leads to heaven. Yay! (laughs) We're so glad you are here. So we're going to get started, and we are thankful that some people showed up. We recognize we're competing with a lot of different classes today. So our session is the mansion in the middle. Can everybody hear me? Uh, Choosing the love that leads to heaven. So we're going to just jump right into it, and then hopefully get to a lot of questions as well. And we already went over the abstract. abstract. (laughs) Yep. Do you want to? Okay. So we started this company uh, a year ago today, actually. Today is our one-year anniversary. We have been friends for 16-plus years, Mm -hmm. and um, we are both life coaches and just decided that this was where we needed to be, working with families and um, youth of LGBTQ in, in all different LGBTQ groupings, you know, um, it is very personal for us. And we really believe that this concept of walking fearlessly for us is about tapping into the things that are um, kind of that um, all of us have external forces that help us make decisions and tapping into getting away from those echo chambers, getting away from the things that are fear driven and really moving to a place of love and trust as we make intentional choices. And we really believe that when we step into personal power is when we then are able to build community and connections and build the things that we're always looking in our world to build. So that's a little bit about our company. We do individual coaching. We do group coaching. We've got coaching right now. We've got groups that we're doing for kids. We've got a couple of anxious teen groups that we're doing and they're all online and we offer really affordable options because we feel like this should be something that everybody has access to in terms of mental health. So we thought it would be fun beyond our bios, which are a lot of fluff, um, to tell you a little bit about each of us just so that you know a little bit kind of about our personalities. So uh, this is me. Uh, my favorite places to go in the world. Uh, there is a camp up three miles from the south border of Yellowstone called Camp Law. I worked there for four summers on a Boy Scout camp. 
And uh, there's this gorgeous lake called Lake Lewis, and it is my favorite place to go. My two boys are there right now working, and I get to go and see them tomorrow, and I'm beyond excited. And then Hebkin Lake, which is just outside of West Yellowstone, again, one of my favorite places. And last year, I was able to go to Kauai and just fell in love with the island and dream of going back. Um, we are going to talk a lot in here about fear today. So we thought we'd tell you some of the phobias that we wish we could break. Uh, I have a degree in environmental studies and a degree in rec ed. And I have a whole other part of my life where I did a lot of educating with that. And so I have spent a lot of time outdoors. I am cautious about bears. I am terrified of birds. <laughs> they are very unpredictable. They crop all over everything. And I just get really anxious when flying birds are around. And I wish it was something I could. My kids think it's hilarious. And we have birds that try and nest above our front door. So you open the door and they like attack you. It is like a nightmare for me. So um, we were thinking about instant skills we wish we had. I wish I could draw and paint. I have tried. It is not something I can easily do. Um, and then books are a big thing for us. So Jane Eyre is my favorite book of all time. I read it every year. Uh, Shadow of the Moon, All the Light We Cannot See, and The Mastery of Love. And then I love music. I have instructed my family that I would very much like ACDC and Van Halen played at my funeral on the organ because I think that would be awesome with the electric guitar as well. Um, I love Sarah McLaughlin and Sarah Bareilles. I love Kelly Clarkson and Pink. And uh, my daughter and I talked about it and I'm a little embarrassed to say, but I totally love her. I love Taylor Swift. <laughs> I will listen to Taylor Swift all day long. So, so I'm Sarah Matthews. I'm the other half, I guess, of mm -hmm. Walk Fearlessly Coaching. Um, and so here's some things about me. My favorite place is the Bodega Bay area beaches, uh, which is just not too far north of San Francisco. That's where I serve my mission on the coast of Northern California. And Schoolhouse Beach is my favorite place to take my kids. They've got tide pools and it's very fun. Um, a phobia I wish I could break, because let's face it, it's a ridiculous one, is radio static. really hate radio static. I hate repeating messages on the radio, you know, like traffic alerts or weather alerts. It just feels very dystopian to me, so I don't, I don't like those at all. Um, if I had an instant skill, I wish I could speak another language. I have two kids that are in Spanish immersion classes in school, and I wish I could speak Spanish with them, but I cannot. Um, and when Emily said we should do our favorite books, I thought that's not fair. I'm an English literature major. So just a few that kind of top the list. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. I love that. Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite Harry Potter. The Two Towers is my favorite Lord of the Rings. And The View from Saturday is just delightful. Um, and then favorite music. I have a very eclectic mix, but thought I would pick one from each kind of genre that I like to listen to. So Billy Joel, Garth Brooks, and Shepard are the ones I'm sharing today. So now that you know a little bit about us and our own phobias, we're going to start talking about heaven and hell. And, and we, we want to present it first like this, because I think when you start to talk about heaven and hell, this is kind of the vision that people have is that hell is on one side, it is bad. And then you have heaven or good things on the other side. 
um, they're kind of positioned in this black and white narrative, and they're they're really depicted as these polar opposites. We're either good or we're bad. Um, and then we start to add our religious teachings and our religious Sorry. script into that. Um, and we, we really feel like we have this handbook that tells us which place we're going to go. And in between, there is this very back, black and white path that connects them, right? Um, and so as, you start, as we start to talk about this, I want you to think about what are some of your preconceived notions about where heaven and hell kind of exist on this spectrum? Because in reality, we would say that rather than heaven and hell being on a black and white sphere, we deal a lot in, you know, with people's lives and, and different things. And we find that life is a lot more messy than black and white most of the time. There's this vast array of gray. And what we actually find is that rather than heaven and hell being kind of these polar opposites, we find that fear is really what exists on these polar opposites. On one side, we have fear of failure, and we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about each of these fears, but to kind of introduce them, we have fear of failure on one side, which is this scrupulously seeking perfectionism. There cannot be mistakes. Everything has to be perfect. Um, and if, if I'm not perfect, if I don't show up perfectly in the world, then I am not enough to make it into heaven. Then on the other side, we have what we call fear of loss. And that would be kind of, you know, um, encapsulated in this idea that fear, that, that life is rigged, that it's unfair, and that it's really devoid of connection, that I cannot connect with God. And so therefore that exists kind of at this other end of the spectrum. But we would, we would say, we would postulate that actually heaven exists in the middle. When we can move away from fear, we can move into a place of love, of trust, and connection. That is where heaven actually is. And that it is in this balance of, of walking away from these other fears that we actually um, have a working definition of what heaven is here and, and choosing the heaven that exists in the eternities. So we're going to walk through how to get there, right? From those spaces to the middle. And with everything, we kind of like to start with the brain because the brain is awesome. It does all these great things besides the organ capacity that we have, you know, that keeps us breathing and all of that. We also have our thoughts and our beliefs and everything gets packed in there. And we love this image of a iceberg because neuroscientists believe that 90, 95% of our choices are actually subconsciously driven, which is great sometimes. Um, and that 5 to 10%, just like this, like that surface, 5 to 10% is above, and then there's all this other stuff underneath. And our brains are amazing because they store all these things that happen, and they catalog them for us, and they can instantly pull them up without us even thinking. It's like the muscle memory that we have. I don't know if you have this, but oftentimes when I am driving somewhere, I will end up, I don't know, well, I do know why. It's because I go there a lot. But I will be driving in this one area where I live in Colorado, and sometimes I will just find myself in Target parking lot. And I don't know how I got there. <laughs> like, how did I get here? Because my brain knows how to drive there. And if I'm on that road, I'm like, oh, that must be where we're going. I'm there. It's that subconscious. I was not intentionally thinking. I'm like up in my thoughts, whatever. I end up there. So the thing that we do know is our conscious mind can be stronger, but our subconscious mind is fa faster. 
which is awesome because as we're going to talk about, that's what keeps us alive. That's what keeps us constantly trying to, you know, it mitigates quickly for us. So we have to start talking about where do those subconscious things start to come from? Where do we compile them? And so from the time we're born, um, we are in a constant state of learning. Our brains are constantly growing um, and they're constantly learning. And in the beginning, our brain's main purpose is to keep us alive. That's its job. It's to, it's to stay alive. And so it begins to learn things that can harm us, that can get us into trouble. And it begins to store all those information. And that's what starts to make up this iceberg effect um, in, the, in the bottom. So as kids, we learn from our parents, from our caregivers. We learn sometimes what keeps us physically safe. I cannot tell you how many times various variations of this phrase don't do that, you're going to get hurt, has come out of my mouth as a mother, right? Or be careful doing that because you could get hurt. But then there's this other kind of scripting that can happen when we're young as well. And that is the type of scripting that is also oftentimes given to us by the adults in our life. And sometimes it can be ideas to keep us safe from being in trouble, from being harmed emotionally, from being harmed mentally, you know, Mom and dad get really upset. They get really angry when this happens. Um, so I'll tell you, when I was a child, um, my mom ended up in the hospital. My dad was working in Florida. We were living in Colorado. And it was taking him some time to get home. And we were kind of farmed out to neighbors. And I learned very quickly that I was kind of in the way. Nobody really wanted me there. They were doing my family a favor, but nobody really wanted me there. I was in inconvenience. And I began to learn that uh, to stay out of trouble, I needed to be very quiet, very perfect. I needed to not make any waves. And that was how I was going to stay safe in this situation. But unfortunately, what kept me safe in that situation also then becomes part of this subconscious scripting that as an adult maybe isn't quite so helpful. Um, So I want you guys to start to think about, as we start talking about scripting, start to think about what are some kinds of scripting that you might have? Does it come from your religious background? Does it come from your family background? Um, What are some ideas that have been kind of prepackaged and handed to you? And while it may have been useful at one point in time to keep us alive or out of trouble, what happens when that scripting no longer becomes useful. As an adult, I don't know if it's useful to stay quiet and out of the way all the time. Um, And then we we can really start to compile what is the handbook we have developed from these subconscious ideas. And this is kind of given to us as a handbook. But what if this handbook was created without you having a fully functioning brain? I don't know if any of you have teenagers, but I promise you their brains are not fully functioning. Um, And sometimes I feel like my own brain is not fully functioning, but this scripting is now a part of my subconscious. And so as we begin to delve into these fears, sometimes we have to come up with what are these subconscious policies that are informing our fear motivated choices. So here we come back to the pictures of us as little, as little girls. These were our favorite dresses when we were little. Um, Mine, my mom made, and I loved it, and I wore it until I couldn't possibly get into it 
anymore. And that served me as a child. That dress fit me. It fit me well. Um, But if I was to try to get into that dress now, I would maybe be lucky to get my arm (laughs) in it. It would not serve me. And so as we start to look and delve into these fear-based choices that we may have been making, we have to start to rewrite those policies to serve us in our current state. So we're going to start with fear. We're going to go back to fear a little bit. Fear is this really important thing. Fear is really good sometimes. Uh, I was the girls' camp director many years ago for, anyway, and I had to... I'm old enough now that I have to like get up in the middle of the night every night, multiple times and go to the bathroom. And it was like one o'clock in the morning. We get up, we're walking towards this building that had a flushable bathroom and we hear growling and grunting and tables being thrown over outside. And I lived just outside of Yellowstone for multiple summers. So I have a little bit of understanding of bears and I was like, that's a bear. <laughs> I also know you don't want to trap a bear in the middle of the night. You know, you don't want to get in between it. And so we walked just a little way. The woman I was with, I was like, uh, I didn't have to like sit there and go, hmm, I wonder what we should do right now. I need to be an intentional thought. It was the adrenaline and the dopamine and my anxiety, fear thing kicked in perfectly informed my brain. I knew exactly what we needed to do. We needed to get back to our tent first, kind of protection. And then we were able to kind of form a plan of what we were going to do, go make sure our girls were okay, all of that. Fear can be good. Fear is necessary. Fear is beneficial. But the thing is, is our brain doesn't always recognize when it is that, and it may be something social, or it may be something that doesn't need that fight or flight response. So the story that I think of the most is I married into a family of, it's a very typical Mormon family, and they are jello connoisseurs. They are jello style makers. <laughs> they make jello with all kinds of things in it. I can barely get regular jello to set up, let alone put things in it and take the and have the brain capacity to remember that 30 minutes after I put this in, then I have to go mix. I just, it's beyond my capacity, I think. <laughs> and I had this extreme fear that came up. I was always terrified that I was going to get put in charge of making jello for family activities. I would spend tons of time coming up with one that I, I have one jello dish, I am proud to say. I can do it. It's like this seven-layer thing. Anyway, it's pretty simple. But it looks pretty and it looks complex. And so I take it to everything and just change all the colors out. And I'm like, I can do this one. But it brought up the same type of fears for me. And that put me in a real place of scarcity because I wanted to fit in. Because I wanted to be safe. Right? So when we think of fear... And we can see that the jello was actually not going to hurt me in any way, shape. Well, it might have, because there was weird stuff in it sometimes. But um, it's not a harmful thing for me, right? So when we talk about fear of failure, tends to be in this place of I am not enough. I need to earn my value. I need to prove somehow that my performance 
is going to be good. Uh, my property, right? I get tied into this enoughness. Uh, my appearance. And think about all then the scripting that gets loaded into that, especially within religious constructs. How much gets loaded into property, performance, appearance, and opinion of others that really informs this fear base. Am I enough? Am I able to keep myself safe? And then there's fear of loss, which is somehow my life is not right. There is chaos in the world. My life is not right. I am going to lose whatever. I'm going to lose my kid. I'm going to lose, they might lose their salvation. When we tie salvation into our fears, think about what that that's like that we, we've set that up as the ultimate win or loss, you know? So, oops, did I go to the right one? Okay. The, and it's interesting because the whole term of salvation, which I connect in terms of like heaven too, right? Those words are connected for me. It can be loaded with fear because our scripting informs it, right? And fear leads us to try and get to a place of safety. Salvation, we think, is the ultimate safety. We're saved, right? If you look at the definition, it is deliverance. It is um, protection from danger and disaster. So we tie into that and we go, I have to be there. And we're given scripting of all the things that are going to get us there. So, Keep in mind, think about the things where you may have some fear, where your scripting may be contributing to this. We find that a lot of times we tend to be, we all have both, but we tend to be in kind of one or the other. I'm very fear of failure dominant. I had a lot of scripting as a kid to perform and be performative to be loved. And so I'm very fear of failure. I'm so tied into that. Yeah, it's awesome. And I'm more fear of loss space. Yeah. So it's good (laughs) because we both don't, when we get afraid of something in our business, it's usually like polar opposites of things and she'll be like safe and I'll be a mess. So, okay. And vice versa. Yeah. So when we start to talk about moving to the middle, neither of us put Diamond Rio on our favorite music list, but this song always kind of seems to play into it. So I'll just read it and you can sing along in your head if you want. Um, But this idea of I'll start walking your way and you'll start walking mine. We'd meet in the middle neath that old Georgia pine because we gain a lot of ground because we both give a little and there ain't no road too long when we meet in the middle. And how we bring that back into the mansion in the middle is we have to give ground up for our fears and make a conscious intentional decision to step into a different place, a place of better scripting. And our brain wants us, especially, I want you to think about if you're in fear of failure or fear of loss. We get really polarized in that space, right? And then we think, oh, in order to be safe, or we recognize maybe that's not healthy, so we go, for me, I'll give you an example. (laughs) I have tended to be a little bit of a doormat. People please her. Do whatever. So in my brain, I'm like, well, then I have to go clear to the opposite side of that line and be strong and aggressive. And But what if I only have to make it to the middle, which is a clearer, safer spot? What if that, I just have a few steps to take to get into this place of clarity. 
So for us, we believe that the first step from either side is to trust. Get to a place where we can trust because trust equals safety. Trust is I trust that I am safe. Human value cannot be changed. Mine can't, nobody's can't. That's a huge one. When I show up and just think, this, they are, your shirt, the back of your shirt, Bob. He has, stand up so they can see it. Can you guys read that? Turn around so I can read it for the people that aren't like this way so yeah, I can read it. Oh, now I can't see it. Come on. <laughs> you read it. We are exactly what God had in mind when he made. Think about that. That is trust. Right? We don't have to earn love from God. Were you taught that? I had mixed messages on that one. Um, Our journey is not a pass or fail exam. I really believed everything was pass or fail. You know, you either succeed or you do not. So when I get in trust and I believe, actually, everything here for me is just learning and growth. This is my perfect classroom. We use that word a lot. This is our perfect classroom. Mm -hmm. Perfect classroom journey. Um, Experiences are actually an opportunity to learn and grow. Mistakes are an opportunity to learn and grow. And to know what's actually in my control and step into personal power becomes huge. So our first thing is, can you get into trust? What is that going to look like? Okay, so once you get into trust, once you trust, look, this is my perfect journey. My value doesn't change. My mistakes do not change my value in God's eyes. Then we're able to really start to extend that out to the people that we love. And to everyone, even people that are really hard to love. Um, and so if we're, if we're thinking about building, building this house, building this mansion that we want to be in in the middle, um, we start to build walls based in trust, and then we extend that out into love with other people. Because if my value cannot change, neither can this person's. If my, my classroom is the perfect journey, so is theirs. And it's going to look different than mine, and that's Okay. And they're going to come to learn different things in different ways, and that's okay too. Sometimes when we start to talk about relationships, we have to really start to talk about a balance of power. And Emily kind of talked about it on the last slide, this idea of your personal power. And when we talk about relationships, there's really two kind of ways that we can show up. And Emily's going to talk a little bit more about that. Power over or personal power. And how does that? So we love Patricia Evans. She has written a lot about um, relationships. She's got a great book about verbally abusive relationships. And one of the things she talks a lot about is the the two dynamics of power. And one of them is power over. And I want you to think about when we just say these words, how power over is always based in fear. There's control. It's win-lose. It's that black and white thing. One right answer, everything has to be homogenous, right? The same, we have to have conformity. Groupthink feels very safe in power over. Um, We look at people as competitors and opponents. We get into scarcity mindset and we blame. We go to these places of fear, right? We think the end justifies the means. If we can go to a power balance that is personal power, This is win-win, many winners, many right ways, diversity, is actually where we're headed. 
um, collaborative. We're focused more on growth and curiosity. Others are viewed as allies, and the means is the end. That's where I'm headed, right? So this is, can you see that those are love-based choices when we each are in personal power? And then again, when we allow other people to be in their personal power. Yeah, so we, uh, we use, in our, in our coaching practice, we sometimes will use examples from a book called The Mastery of Love. And in The Mastery of Love, it really talks about how the only way to have a relationship that really functions perfectly is when both people come together in their personal power and respect the personal power of the other person. So when we can trust that our, our value is fixed, that our journey is a perfect classroom, when we can extend that out to other people and believe that their perfect journey is their perfect journey and that their value is fixed and unchanging, we get to this place of connection. Connection with ourselves, connection with others, and connection with God, which we would argue is the definition of heaven, to have deep, meaningful connections in each of these categories. Um, And sometimes to be in the middle, we really have to hold things that might seem in the beginning as diametrically opposed. But we would like to offer that Christ was kind of the master at being able to do that. So years ago, we saw this Instagram post. There's a gentleman, he's an LDS author. His name's Richard Iyer. But he gave this really interesting thought, and it just, we have just, it made so much sense to us in our coaching, in our brains. And it's this concept that we have started calling the um, balance of paradoxes. And in this, he talks about how Jesus Christ, as we, is representative, right, is the balance of the paradoxes. We've got confidence and humility, conviction and sympathy. Everything is like, on those ends. And when we get polarized in one side, we are in a place of fear. Like if I'm using my confidence from a place of fear, what does that look like? Right? There's self-culture and interest in ordinary, you know, we keep our ambition, interest in ordinary persons. They, they balance one another out. So we would offer you know, there's always that concept of like the holy person who's meditating, but is oblivious to the crying of starving children. How do we hold both? And, and so it is constantly trying to pull in both and on each side, I need to be strong and, you know, I need to have strength and love. I can't, I have to have strength and wisdom. I can't just polarize on one side. I often find in many religions, I love studying religion. I love going to different religions. It's one of my favorite things too. We like pick different churches to go to with my kids and learn about them and attend. And it's so amazing because I think how often do we apply things and we hand them out in these black and white constructs and say, do this, do that. And really, we're like, no, it's both and in the middle. So when we try to balance our scales on a fulcrum of fear, it is always going to be out of balance. Always. It just will be. And it's going to be that kind of 
back to, I know I forgot to talk about it, but in that power balance, you saw the teeter-totters. Think about it. If we're always trying to be the one up and that power over, it's always going to be off. We're never going to find the balance. But that trust, love, and connection is the key. So we wanted to really give you examples from our own lives through our own struggles, I guess, in learning how to do this. Uh, What do TLC choices that lead to heaven actually look like? So when we talk about TLC, instead of tender, loving care, we talk about it in terms of trust, love, and connection. So let's talk about that kind of more in a practical way, because it's easy to kind of talk about these things in these big, large generalities. But how does that look in situations in your own life? So we, we picked a couple from our own life, um, and then we're going to talk about the situation and, and how we were able to come to a place in the middle. So up here, you have pictures of my firstborn. Um, she, she's awesome. She's actually here with me today, and I adore her. Um, if any of you were to ask a new parent, they're going to tell you it's a difficult time. It's a difficult time of life. Um, you're sleep deprived. You have this person you're supposed to be responsible for now. And it's just tough. But there were some situations in my own particular circumstance that actually compounded that. Um, So to start, my husband, Jason, had just graduated from college and had started a new job. And they told him he could have one day off from his training program to come. So luckily, she was born on a Saturday, which meant that he got the Monday I came home from the hospital to be there with me. Um, And then he had to go back to work. That was it. That was his paternity leave. Um, But it was okay because my mom, who had helped all of my sister, my sister with all of her kids, she was going to come and help me. She was going to come the day I came home from the hospital and kind of get situated so that she could come help me for the next week while Jason was working. And uh, she had a doctor's appointment, then she'd be over. And her doctor's appointment was at about 10 o'clock in the morning, and 11 came and went, and 12 came and went, one came and went, two came and went, and we calling and calling and she wasn't answering. And we finally get a call from the director of the psychiatric ward at the hospital to let me know that my mom had been blue sheeted by her doctor that day. For those of you that don't know what that is, that is when a medical professional feels that you are a danger enough to yourself that you need to have a stay in the hospital. Um, So she was not coming. (laughs) She was not. She was going to be occupied in other ways. Um, And that was going to start a two and a half, almost three year court order commitment, which doesn't mean she's in the hospital the whole time, but that does mean that the courts are going to micromanage your mental health. And she would not be able to drive because she had this terrible habit of running away and calling us from strange states. And that was not going to work with a court order commitment. And so with a newborn, I would become my mom's caretaker and I would have to make sure that she made it to six to seven mental health appointments every week. Um, On top of that, my daughter had what was called sleepy baby syndrome, which meant she could not wake up long enough to eat. Um, And the more she slept, the less calories she had and the more tired she became, and it became this downward spiral. So at her four-day appointment, she had lost 10% of her birth weight. Um, And then finally, I would find out later, I would not know this at the time, but I would be struggling with almost crippling postpartum depression. I would not know what that was until I would do some research on it and I would have some people inform me later that that's what was happening. Um, But that would be on top of of all of that. Now, to kind of contrast this, um, I'll tell you about an experience that I had when my son was born uh, 22 months later. 
My mom would still be under court order commitment, still not in a position to help me. And my husband would gain a new job and a son on the same day after a long bout of unemployment, as the recession of that time was not kind to our family. Um, And I would do it all over again by myself. And I was asked to make a meal for a neighbor who had just had a baby. My son was about two months old. And I said, that's fine. I can make double. I'll take it over. And I went over and dragged my kids in there because my husband was working and uh, with this meal that I had made. And in there, her house was immaculate. And there was soft music playing. And her husband had the baby. And her mom was there. And she just made chocolate chip cookies that were cooling on the, on the, you know, on the counter. And it was this beautiful, serene thing. And they said, oh, we're so sorry. Carrie's not going to be able to come down. She's taking a nap, a well-deserved nap. And I walked out of there and I got in my car and I cried (laughs) because that was never going to be my life. That was not my life. That was not my experience. And there was a lot of anger that came from that because, um, and this fear of loss. Remember, we go back to fear of loss being something is not right with my life. Life is unfair. Life is rigged. And if ever I felt like the cards were stacked against me, this was a big one for me to see the juxtaposition between what was happening in other people's lives and what was happening in mine. And there was so much fear of loss, so much fear that my kids were going to lose a grandmother to suicide, so much loss that, um, you know, that I, my, my dream of this beautiful moments with my newborns, they were not going to be, that was not going to be what I was able to have. Now let's talk about how that actually ended up serving me though. When I was able to stop worrying about losing this experience that I had wanted, about losing my parent, about losing some salvation and safety, I was able to really step into a place of trust of this is my perfect classroom. This is my perfect classroom and my beginnings as a mother is not going to define my value as a mother one way or another. I learned I could do immensely hard things. I learned I could mother by myself if I needed to. And I could be good at it. I learned that how capable I truly was. And I learned that I could forgive myself in really powerful ways for my own shortcomings. Now, once I could learn to do that for myself, this allowed me to branch that out to my mother, who, after this really, really dark, intense period, um, and she'd struggled with anxiety and depression and, and a lot of mental illness through my entire childhood and into my children's childhood. But she was actually a really good grandma. She was really good at showing up for my kids right where they were and just loving them unconditionally. My oldest once told me, um, I know you love me, but nobody loves me in the same way grandma loves me. And once I could see my own journey as perfect, I could see this as her perfect journey too. And instead of being angry at the limited capability, capacity that she had at this time and how it affected me, I was really able to forgive her. And we became very, very close. I actually lost my mom about four weeks ago. And this experience of being able to give that to her, boy, did we make great memories in that 16 years. And we made great memories in all the time I spent with her, taking her to those doctor's appointments and seeing that as her perfect journey in classroom. And lastly, this really allowed me to connect with my heavenly parents in very powerful ways. Because I did not know what I was doing and I was by myself, I had to rely 
on my heavenly mother to teach me what in the world I was doing. And I will give you a, a quick example of what happened that really allowed me to see that they were not going to let me fail at this. Um, because she had sleepy baby syndrome, we started trying to supplement my daughter's diet with formula. She was about a month old, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to supplement with some formula. This pumping and feeding is driving me crazy. So I gave her a bottle. She drank about half of it, and then she started vomiting. And then all these hives started coming up and down her neck, and she started doing this. (laughs) Which, as a new mother, was very panic-striking for me. And as clear as day, I said, I don't know what to do. I just said, God, I do not know what to do. I have nobody. Please help me know what to do. And this vision came into my mind. There was a clinic that was five minutes down the road. And very clearly, I heard in my mind, take her to that clinic. It will be faster than having an ambulance come. So I put her in the car. I drove there, had great nurses who helped this poor little first-time mom. The doctor said, is this your first baby? And I was like, why does the panic on my face give me away? And it did, but they were amazing. And they made sure her lungs were clear. They got her the, you know, the stuff she needed to, to um, calm down the swelling and get her breathing again and all of the things that we needed. And I knew that I was not alone. It was this experience that really taught me that my heavenly parents are in the fabric of my life. So what would have seemed like this great loss, so much on the line, became this beautiful place of love, trust, and connection. So mine is next, <laughs> and I am going to talk about fear of failure a little bit. This is my kiddo, and um, around this time, he was 13 there, and around 13 years old, uh, he one Sunday came to us and said, uh, I found him in the closet crying, and I went in and said, what's going on? And he said, I can't tell you because if I do, I'll break your heart. And I said, did you kill somebody? And he said, no. And I was like, okay, I think we're good. And he said, I don't believe in God. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. I prepared myself for him possibly being gay or queer or wherever. I like prepared myself mentally for that. I prepared myself for a lot of talks. For some reason, this is not one that occurred to me. (laughs) And it kind of sent me... I did pretty well in the moment. It sent me on this fear spiral. I spiraled because I was terrified of failing. I was so terrified of failing. And I spent the next week doing all the things that I'd been taught to do as a kid. I read my scriptures and I went to the temple and I was telling God, like, here's the thing, God. I will do all the things. I will force him. I will make him listen to the wording, power over, right? I will get him where he's supposed to be. And I got nothing, nothing, except this one thought that kept coming to me, which was your only job is to love this child. That's it. I was like, no, I don't think, I don't think you understand. I'm very performative based, right? I'm going to make, I'll make it work. And I just was in turmoil. And then I found myself, I remember I was sitting, I, I do a lot of meditation, and I was doing meditation one day, and I had this image come into my brain of me standing on this pedestal. And I realized when I got really clean with myself that my greatest fear, when I asked myself, what's my greatest fear? Oh, it actually 
wasn't even a salvation for me. Remember, I'm not really tied into fear of loss that much. It was, everybody will think I'm a bad mom. Everybody is going to not just think, they're going to know that I'm a bad mom. And I remember standing, it was like I was standing on this pedestal, and I loved the Robert Frost poem of the two roads. And I was like, my kid is walking this way, and I can either stand here and have this false image of a perfectionist mom that other people think, or I can actually become a good mother. And I was like, I'm off the pedestal. And I'm going to walk with this kid wherever he decides to go. Now, that was tricky. I'm not going to say that that was, like, tricky. I had, he came back to church for a little while, and I had a, my Relief Society president who I had told that story to. Like, I felt so impressed by this. She said, I just thought that you decided to do that so that you could feel good because God and the Spirit would never tell you those things. And I was like, oh, and I was like, oh, they do think I'm a bad mom. And I was like, I don't care because they know what I'm doing with this kid. So let me tell you about him. He's 19 years old. I may cry. I'm sorry. He's the most amazing human I know. He is amazing. He is an atheist with a very well thought out value system. He's the funniest little atheist I've ever met. And he is just constantly coming to me and saying, I just need to talk to you about this. I need to, he went through a uh, period of um, nihilism where he would teach me all these things. And he loves the outdoors. He lives in such integrity with his beliefs. We constantly will ask our kids, where, what, are, what are the things you're valuing right now? Where are your value systems and how are you living in integrity with those? What does that look like for you right now? He is a champion for the oppressed and marginalized. And I was like, oh, we taught him all these critical thinking skills. And now he knows how to use them. And he is so healthy, mentally, emotionally. I am still a practicing member of our faith, of the LDS faith. And he's so respectful of my, he'll always say, can you explain to me what you believe? Because I really believe you're in a cult. And I was like, okay, I see the cultiness. I meet you there. I get the cultiness. Totally. <laughs> and he'll say, why are you, I need, he's like, I, I don't understand. And we'll talk about it. And then I can say, tell me where you are in this. And he'll say, I'm really afraid for your salvation, mom. And I'm like, I love that you love me so much. And there may be a point where I don't know. I'm on my own faith journey, Right. And he's like, but you were there for me on mine, and now I want to be there for you on yours. And I was like, okay. And it is this beautiful thing. Now, he is a teenager. He's 19. So we still have our moments. But it's not all like love and butterflies and unicorns. But that moment for me was about trust, love, and connect. I could trust, love, and connect with this kid, or he could walk out of my life, and I could stand there alone on my perfect pedestal and hold on to my fear of failure. That, for me, was that moment. So I'm going to ask you guys a few, um, a few questions here as, as, we go, as we go along. But we like this, uh, this statement, start as you mean to go on. And so if you're thinking about, okay, how do I move to the middle? How do I move out of fear? Um, 
So we, we want you to figure out where do you want to end up? When you think of heaven, what does that look like? And if your heaven is a place you can only reach through fear-based decisions, is it a place you really want to be? It's not really where I want to be. I want to be somewhere where there's love, trust, and connection. Um, And so if you don't know what that is, start figuring that out. Figure out where am I in fear and how can I let go of that and move to the middle? And then this is, you know, a fairly common Chinese proverb. I'm sure you all have heard it, but a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And usually this is used in like health motivation and things like that. But I want you to think about this for a minute. That same kiddo I told you about at nine years old was diagnosed as autistic. And when he was younger, I had an extreme fear of what was going to happen to him in his life. And I would future trip a lot. We call it future tripping. I would like forecast what was going to happen. And I would be like, this happened. He's going to end up in jail. I know it. He's never going to graduate high school. And worse yet, he's going to end up living with me for the rest of my life. I like was terrified of that. Terrified of that. And I remember calling my mom one day. I'm the oldest of seven kids. So I just viewed her. She's like this amazing mother. And I called her and I said, I don't know what to do. And he's going to end up. And she goes, what if you just got him through second grade, Emily? It's like, oh, And she said, what if you just focused on where he is right now and met him there? And you got him to his next step. And then because you met him there, he was prepared for the next step. So where are you in your journey? What is your next step? Um, Where are your fears? Where do you have old scripting? What can you do to trust yourself and feel safe in your journey? What are love-based choices for you? And how do those help you connect? Those are the questions. Where am I in fear? How do I have to shift and pivot? What needs to happen for me to move to that middle ground? I love this. I have multiple clients right now. We have multiple clients. But I've been working with a lot of clients um, that are in the process of deconstruction after leaving the LTS faith. And these questions are, for the first time, they feel like they get to answer those questions. And it's amazing. They're like, oh, I get to choose. And I was like, yeah, you get, you're an adult. You get to choose, right? So how will you walk fearlessly? That's our question. And again, the beautiful thing is it's all internal. Like, I can't tell you what those steps are. I don't tell my coaches. I have a lot of clients who, both of us do, who will be like, what is the right answer? And I'm like, got nothing for you. What is your right answer? So that's kind of our gift to you. You get to take that home and figure it out. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you for coming. Thank you, thank you.